2: We hear all the time people that feel like their financial situation is one of the most dire aspects of their marriage. If it wasn't for money problems, we wouldn't have any problems at all. Usually one of them has got a plan in their mind as to just how they could resolve their family finances. The problem is they can't get the other person to yield. They're two people stuck, married, but in the mode of competing rather than completing each other. What they're vying for is control, and you might even have the right financial methods for how to dig out of this situation, but if you miss the heart condition behind your situation, if you go and demand that your spouse follows your leadership, I'm here to warn you it's going to be a long, painful journey ahead. Over and over again, we have learned that when it comes to decisions in your marriage, it's not about people following your leadership. It's not about you at all, in fact. What you want to do is demand that the decisions in your marriage, and especially involving your money, are made from a biblical perspective. Now, if your spouse argues with that, go and ask them. Would you be able to back up that position biblically? Because if they can, awesome. But ask them to find the verses that support that stance. Are you being a good steward? For, are you being a good steward with what God has given you? What are the things? This, that I'm doing with my money that maybe God hasn't actually asked me to do. All these are good questions, questions that we want to help you answer in this multi-part series. Last time we used the analogy of flying a plane and we spoke about the spender spouse and the saver spouse. The spender being that person who doesn't look far enough down the itinerary to get past the most immediate destinations. In their flight plans, the savers, they've got so much extra fuel packed into that plane for a flight that doesn't require it. It's so overloaded, the plane can never even get off the ground. So often, all they do is plan and plan and plan for the worst. Today, we're going to be talking to the giver spouse. Although this is probably the smallest group, these are the people who sometimes have a tendency to neglect the things that are essential to flight. My friends lack enough gas to go the distance in their own flight. Sure, you can have whatever you need. Meanwhile, they haven't paid attention to the fact that their own tank is now on empty. And their next flight won't result in a safe trip to their destination, but rather a crash somewhere between here and there. And then finally, we'll be talking to the independent spouse. These are two people flying together, and they have literally forgotten that they are even on the same plane. They've each grabbed the flight stick. They've each got their own itinerary, but they're overlooking the fact that this plane is not going to go in two different directions successfully. Whether it's the saver spouse vying for security or the spender spouse buying happiness with more possessions, we have a tendency to focus on what will satisfy me.
1: What happens then is we start to view our spouse as an obstacle to that happiness. When you notice you're feeling like your spouse is standing in your way, take that as your cue, that a change of heart is needed, that they are not an obstacle to the happiness in your life. They are not the issue. It may just be that you need to reorder your priorities before the Lord.
2: When we were talking earlier to the saver spouse, maybe your ears perked up. If you are the saver spouse, we often think with this silent pride, praise God, I am not the spender spouse. And spenders do get a bad rap. And to be fair, there is certainly that group of them that's really impatient, just mesmerized with the trinket extras. But there are some of them that are so excited to give that they could never save. They're really generous givers. And if you are a generous person who recognizes the needs that God has placed within your sphere of influence and your heart is to serve those needs, you know what, generally speaking, I can't do anything but commend you. But if this is you, and you're probably the minority in our audience We want to speak to you about how to move forward in a way that will glorify God. Our first reaction for anyone who's generous is always to say, Hey, high five, good job, right on.
1: But a word of caution, the generous giver needs to see the whole power of God, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can move mountains. He can break chains. He provides healing for the hurting. The best case scenario is that you are a tool in his hand. It's not on you to be God. It's on you to be obedient to God.
2: We would always encourage you to be reactive to the things that you feel spirit-led to donate toward, but be aware and make sure your spouse is aware of these two stumbling blocks. Number one, many generous people actually act somewhat selfishly because they're craving the recognition and the praise of others so much so that they give. They're truly seeking their own glory. So when they feel down about where they are, they go seeking, they go giving. It's not for God's glory, it's for their own. And this is actually not a generous gift. Or the second stumbling block, if your own family's financial needs are not being met, you might be walking a tightrope of marriage survival.
1: What David's talking about there is from 1 Timothy 5, eight. but those who won't care for their own relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Wow, that is pretty direct.
2: No matter the situation, the generous-hearted person needs to know that they are much, much more capable, much more powerful in God's hands when they work together with the one that he made you one with. And that would be your spouse. For those who tend to be very generous, I want to encourage you to praise God where he has given you a saver spouse, who's actually gonna enable your marriage to be generous over the long haul. But be wise about this. Don't get out of step with each other. The two of you working together are gonna do a lot of great things for God. God will use the saver spouse in your marriage to help you to know the appropriate needs of your family, and you need to view that spouse as a gift.
1: The reality is this, generous people are rare. Selfish people are plentiful, and I'm definitely one of them. Often there's one spouse who wants the ability to spend without input or control of the other spouse, and that starts a marriage toward financial separation. And this is a leap towards a marriage in jeopardy. In spite of all the secular advice these days to live financially independent, we've seen over and over that it just doesn't work. God's design is... In marriage is for us to be one in every way. David and I actually got off to a bumpy start because of a hasty bedroom furniture purchase that I made. It sends a clear message. Making separate financial decisions says, I don't value your input. I don't trust your judgment. This is why we've never seen a marriage with financial independence or financial separation that's actually had real spiritual unity.
2: We've seen cases where a husband pretty much requires his wife works, not because their family couldn't survive without her income, but because of his desire for stuff. We've seen cases where a husband works himself to death, taking all the overtime he can get for a wife who spends freely because she wants a lifestyle that others would be jealous of. We've seen many cases where a wife works because she doesn't trust her husband A husband works overtime because he wants to stash some cash on the side.
1: Now, we're not saying it's wrong for a wife to work outside the home, not at all, or a husband to work overtime, but it is something that every husband and wife needs to come together on and seriously evaluate. Is this the best thing for our family? Or have we made a choice towards financial autonomy? Have we considered the real needs of our family? Or is one of us losing the battle with an insatiable desire for stuff?
2: What do you do that is financially separating you from each other and potentially from God? Or have you planned to fail by simply failing to plan? Maybe we've never sat down with all of our finances out on the table and looked at building a budget, one that's realistic, one that can work. Does one of you own a car separately? Is this my house because I bought it before we got married? Is that my retirement fund? Stop all of these things. When two become one, this includes your finances. If this is you, take steps to become one now. Both people should be full owner of every material possession. Both people should be aware of and in pursuit of reducing all of the debt.
1: The next area we're going to touch on can be a sensitive one. We have stood beside couples in crisis who foolishly try to restrict their spouse who spends uncontrollably by budgeting a set number of dollars per person in the marriage for a slush fund. It's possible that could be a means of controlling an out-of-control spender, but it needs to not come from you if you're the saver. It needs to come from the person who has a hard time not getting out of control with their spending. The person who is overspending needs to examine their priorities before the Lord The person who perceives themselves as in control needs to examine if they are addressing the symptoms or the cure.
2: It can be so tempting to look at the effect and not the cause. Situations like this need to be examined at the heart level first. That's what these broadcasts are really all about trying to point out. Be humble if you're the person in the wrong. Be ready to subject yourself to God's word and your spouse's wisdom. Don't let your pride over financial matters be the demise of your marriage. Well, we've been talking about spenders and savers. We've talked about the financial independence. I want to close this subject with a word of caution. It's not uncommon that when we talk with couples in financial trouble, they say something like, well, listen, John, he's got $4,000 of the debt and, and he pipes up, yeah, but Sue has 2000 And these independent debts can be an easy place for people to commit marriage suicide. What starts out as a monthly slush fund or a desire to blow $200 here or there in any way I want turns into my own credit cards that I'm eventually grabbing for funds for at the end of the month in hopes of trying to make that minimum payment. Next thing you know, I'm going to buy a new car because I'm sick of my old one. My spouse disagrees, but it doesn't matter. Eventually, this leads to more and bigger purchases. Can you imagine a spouse buying a purchase as big as a house only to tell their spouse after the fact? All of these examples we're giving are real. We have stood face to face with couples facing these very things. If you're flirting with the first step of financial independence, or maybe you've even crossed that line a few times, don't be ignorant as to where it's heading.
1: I think it's so easy to buy into the belief that money will make us happy. And I think that's why God includes this verse in the Bible from first Timothy chapter six, verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I know this next one is true. I've experienced this myself from Ecclesiastes five ten: he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income.
2: Every couple we've found who's been facing either debt or financial problems, they find themselves in this boat where they're tempted to focus on all the wrong things. The issue is not about making sure that your name is on the title of this ill-gotten purchase. The issue is not about making sure that your name is not on the credit card bills for those ill-gotten purchases. What we're talking about is the attitude of your heart. According to the U.S. Census, the median household income in the United States is high enough that America as a whole is in the top percentage of the world's richest people. First Timothy six seventeen 17-19 has application to almost every person hearing my voice today. It says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. The trust should be in God who richly gives all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life.
1: You might be feeling like you're on the ragged edge of paying bills, but meanwhile, you know there's people living in really poor living conditions. Some of us are struggling to stay ahead of those credit card bills from our love of stuff. It's hard to say no, while some of us are just fighting to live, trying to get the next meal. First Timothy 6 gives us a compelling perspective that we so desperately need. If you believe that God has blessed you, consider how well your stewardship has aligned with this passage from First Timothy. It may be time to sit down with your spouse and have a talk. And here are some great conversation starters. Number one, what are our goals? You're guaranteed to have disunity if you have different goals. Try your best to get on the same page.
2: We need to work through how we believe best to steward God's money. We have to examine our priorities through a biblical lens. I mean, what is the most God honoring need that we see around? Put those things first. Do we have debt? Do we give to those in need? Do we meet our monthly bills? Do we have margin for the unexpected? Do we give to our church? Do we have a date fund? Do we fundamentally have the faith to trust God as our family's provider? Do you have the basic tools that every marriage needs? And that's a budget, one that actually balances. A budget uncovers what a family needs. A budget reveals what their duty is and what our limits are. If you don't have one, sit down together, make one tonight. God was gracious enough to give those of us in marriage each other to complete his good work. Our charge today is to be a steward of all that he's given you, your money, your health, your life, your kids. Don't let the love of money ruin your marriage. Be united the way that God intended.
1: Now, David and I, we're not saying we know everything about this, but God's word is our authority. We want to share a little bit of our financial story So as I said earlier, when we got married, it started out with a bang. I bought some bedroom furniture that I couldn't afford. So guess what I did? Of course, I bought it on credit. I went to the store with my mom. She was encouraging me to get it. It was on sale for 40% off. I mean, who could pass up a deal like that? And they were offering 0% financing for 24 months. I'm sold. Now, did I mention I was the spender spouse? I knew David wouldn't approve of this purchase, but we weren't married yet, and it was white, and it was nice, and it was a deal I couldn't pass up. He was pretty upset, just as I predicted.
2: I grew up in a home where things were pretty tight. Money was always an issue, so I was the saver spouse. Security was all too important to me. That was my idol. I always made sure that I had a buffer in the bank, and to hear that Tracy had sent more than the buffer that I had knowing that we were going to get married soon, I was pretty upset. The what ifs ruled my thinking. Fear was what that was.
1: But the purchase was something that we were gonna have to deal with. Now we own the furniture, now we have the debt, so what are we gonna do? We sold my truck to pay off the debt and we bought a wrecked car, which David fixed, to have something to drive. And I really learned my lesson. From there, I was a lot more conservative. We didn't have a budget at the time, but anything that was over the $50 mark, we would always talk about in advance.
2: I was so concerned about money that although I wanted to have kids, I had planned this out. Okay, let's first pay off our student loans and any other miscellaneous things we need to make sure we get taken care of in advance before we have kids. Now, I think God was giggling in heaven right then and there because nine months into our marriage, Tracy comes to me and said, Guess what? We're going to have a baby. Do you remember this day?
1: Yeah, you weren't quite ready for that. You cried.
2: (laughs) I cried. We were in very different spots. I I must confess, Tracy, you handled this so well because I was a wreck. How would I pay for this? That was what was going through my mind. What a stupid thought to be worried about at that time. But for the saver spouse, uncertainty is that place where we see our true colors. Can you relate to that? Our first daughter was born about a year and a half after we were married, and our son was born 11 months after that. Clearly, my financial plans were not working out. We had our third kid three years after that. God used those early years of our marriage to allow each other, to disciple each other as it came to finances. Tracy showed me that security was this idol. God was the provider.
1: And David helped me to see that buying only when we had the money was so much more enjoyable in the end. Now I was a stay-at-home mom with three little kids And David and I, we were just going through life. We had the bills just like you do. We had work, we had preschool, we had grocery shopping, and then we do dinner, baths, bedtime, and put it all on repeat for the next day. I had no inclinations of getting debt free that was not on my radar, but then a friend introduced us to the financial concept of paying off the highest debt first and then rolling that payment onto the next loan. And for us, that meant student loans, because those were the only loans we had besides our house payment. And I really felt a stirring in my heart to get debt free. Like I really felt like this is what God was asking us to do. I started looking at what the Bible said about being in debt and being debt free. And my heart and my mind were suddenly open to this idea. We needed to do this. And David agreed wholeheartedly. Now, we didn't have a lot of extra money. And when I say that, I mean it. We did have a budget by this point in our marriage, but when we went through it with a fine-tooth comb, it was hard to find even an extra $5, but we did just that. We were able to adjust certain things, and we found $50, and that was a really big deal. We made sacrifices. We put preferences aside and began to look at things from a different perspective. I saw that we could cut back in certain areas. I could forgo that trip into my favorite store because what we already had was good enough. I could plan out our meals better to save on groceries. This was suddenly doable.
2: So we took that $50 and we put it toward our highest bill and calculated that if we stayed on budget and paid off the biggest loan and then rolled that extra money into the next biggest loan, it would take seven years. But at that point, all of our student loans would be, would be paid off. And that sounded awesome because I think we had, what, 15 years to go if we were just to have paid it out on schedule. We hadn't really thought too hard about paying off our house, but it felt so good to have a plan and to know where we were going and know that we were being obedient about it.
1: And then just because God is who he is, this is what happened next. Two weeks later, David got a raise at work, and it was one that we were not expecting at all. So we put that extra $200 a month toward that biggest student loan, and now we had $250 to put toward the biggest loan. And God took our very small act of obedience And he blessed us tremendously.
2: We all have skills that are marketable. And if we're willing to go to work, it's an option. Well, I'm into cars and God provided me some opportunities that year for us to earn some extra money by buying and fixing and then selling classic cars. Remember this Model A, Tracy? I I painted one and got another one in trade for doing that work. And that was a car that I fixed up and sold for $6,000 free and clear. I was restoring a 69 Chevelle and I was looking for a passenger door.
1: This is my favorite story.
2: (laughs) I put a wanted out out on Craigslist and a man responded that he had one for $4,500.
1: Wait a minute, a door for (laughs) $4,500?
2: As it turned out, it was a whole car and a car that needed a motor. So I bought the car and I put a $1,000 motor in it and sold the car for $14,000 after I was able to finish fixing it up. We've got lots of these kind of God-sized stories from that season of our lives. You'd never guess this, but within 15 months, we were free of all of our student loan debt. 15 years of debt, consolidated down to seven years, condensed down to 15 months.
1: That is only God.
2: So by this point, we started to pay down our mortgage. And in the midst of that, we moved to Ohio. After selling our house in South Dakota and buying one in Ohio, we aggressively worked to advance the payments on our house. The budget was tight, but we saw God go overboard. With his faithfulness, when we were just a little bit faithful, the house was scheduled to be paid off in 15 years. We ended up paying it off. He ended up paying it off in four and a half years.
1: Success for us was being on that same page all those years ago. when we had that first conversation knowing that there's a goal to reach together and we're going to have to make some sacrifices along the way, but it is for a great purpose. What we're talking about here is unity.
2: The goal wasn't selfish. I mean, you are guaranteed to be fighting if you've got different goals. As a couple, what are our big three to five, big picture financial goals? Is it new furniture? Is it a new car? Is it to pay off medical bills? Sit down tonight with your honey and have this conversation. And after you do prioritize, what are the most God-honoring goals? We need to put those first. When we've got our hearts in the right spot and we let God use each other in this sanctification process, I want to assure you, friends, you're going to see growth, loads of it. Next week, we're going to talk about the biblical principles that we believe will help any family make practical change. So as we wrap up today, here's a few warning signs for you. You need to make sure you tune in next week. Number one, are you checking your line of credit and applying for new credit cards? Are you casually looking at things you can't really afford?
1: Are you mentally right now justifying a purchase that you'll have to go into debt over? do you have a budget? Are you in disagreement on where you're going financially?
2: Do you make big purchases without talking about it first? Is there money in the bank to cover unexpected purchases? Join us next week as we continue to look at marital finances and how you can go from struggling to strong.
0: Vows to Keep is supported by a team which includes biblical coaches, writers, and pastoral advisors. If you have a desire to serve marriages in your community, we would love to hear from you. Vows to Keep is a not-for-profit marriage ministry designed to bring God's encouraging truth to the marriages of our area. As a not-for-profit organization, our commitment to Christ-like marriages includes providing much-needed services regardless of a couple's financial ability to offset the cost of Vows to Keep operations. If you are unable to donate your time or abilities, but would like to help support Vows to Keep financially, visit VowsToKeep.com and click on the donate link. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.